Good morning. This is my 10th convocation address to the Asbury Seminary community. I hope none of the students have heard all 10 of them. <laughs> Means you're on the long plan. But each fall, I fought to, sought to focus on different phases uh, in our mission statement, any phrases in our mission statement, or some aspect of our history or heritage which gave rise to our mission statement. This year, we look at the phrase, sanctified, spirit-filled. This is surely one of the most daunting and humbling aspirations which we set forth at the core of our mission. It is not enough, we have said as a community, to graduate students who are theologically educated as important and as a core to our mission as that is. That is a course being done by seminaries all over the world. But we've also determined that ministry effectiveness must always connect what we know with who we are. Our mission, therefore, is not merely intellectual or cognitive, but is deeply formational. The whole phrase goes to prepare theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. I've gone onto the websites of some of our sister institutions to see what their mission statements say in comparison with ours. This is not intended, this is not intended to be a critique of anyone else's mission statement. I have served joyfully under two of these non-Asbury mission statements. But a comparison is helpful to explore what, if anything, differentiates Asbury from other institutions, at least in our own missional aspirations. The mission of Fuller Theological Seminary is, quote, forming global leaders for kingdom vocations. Gordon Conwell declares that it is an educational institution serving the Lord in his church. Its mission is to prepare men and women for ministry at home and abroad. Denver Seminary exists to, quote, prepare men and women to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture. Trinity Divinity School, out at, uh, part of Trinity National University now, declares their mission is to educate men and women to engage in God's redemptive work in the world by cultivating academic excellence, Christian faithfulness, and lifelong learning. Isn't this interesting? Reformed Seminary's mission is to prepare students to serve Christ in his church through biblical, experiential, and practical ministry. Duke Divinity School, I've got to bring Duke in, uh, Duke Divinity School's mission is to engage in spiritually disciplined and academically rigorous education in service and witness to the triune God in the midst of the church, the academy, and the world. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Brent Louisville, states that under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the mission of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is to be totally committed to the Bible as the Word of God, to the Great Commission as our mandate, and to be a servant of the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention by training, educating, and preparing ministers of the gospel for more faithful service. Nike, their mission statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. That has nothing to do with the others. I just threw that in for good measure. <laughs> now, 
These are all beautiful and well-crafted statements. But Asbury Seminary has this remarkable phrase, sanctified, spirit-filled. That is a gem for us. I love our mission statement. I could spend 10 years expositing all the reasons why. Oh, yeah, I have. <laughs> but for those who may not know it, uh, I am the first president of Asbury Seminary to have no prior connection whatsoever to Asbury Seminary, Asbury University, or Wilmore, Kentucky. I always loved Asbury from afar, but my first real engaged encounter with the seminary, I was a professor at another institution. I went on the web, I typed in Asbury Theological Seminary mission statement, hit enter, and it popped up. And let me say, I was very impressed. It was such a thoroughgoing evangelical statement and Wesleyan statement. I love that it begins with an affirmation of community, we are a community deeply rooted to our heritage, our mission, to one another. I love the explicit Trinitarian framework, you know, the love of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the glory of God the Father. I love that it's framed by the missio Dei, the mission of God. We are community called. It emphasizes God's prior action. With one word, it acknowledges that it's he who planted this community, he who calls us forth, and he who ultimately sends us out. And of course, I love the emphasis on theological education. That's what I've given my life for. But then we have this, uh, also this historical nod to Wesley, the spreading of scriptural holiness. I love that. But the phrase that really caught my attention was the phrase, sanctified, spirit-filled. That is the phrase which rings out and makes our statement distinctive as compared to so many others. My role as president, among many other things, is to assure that we as a seminary are vibrant and moving forward in the right direction. I oversee our 2023 strategic plan. I'm responsible to make sure that we're economically viable and so forth. However, no role of mine is more sacred than guarding and joyfully promoting our mission statement. Will you, our beloved students, actually go forth from this place and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world? I have to ask that question. Are you being theologically educated? Me, along with all the faculty, asks that question. Are you being spirit-filled and sanctified? If you don't know it already, uh, this phrase is repeated, this entire statement is repeated publicly on your graduation day at commencement, and where we declare to the world that that's exactly what's happened while you're here. But is it truly what happens while you're here? Is it truly descriptive of who we are? Or is it merely aspirational? Let me say it again. This phrase, uh, sanctified, spirit-filled, is what sets us apart from the 250 other theological institutions of the Association of Theological Schools, at least in the mission statement. Therefore, it is vital that we as a community never allow the phrase sanctified, spirit-filled to become more, mere dead letters or mere historical markers which only point to our beloved founders or some earlier embodiment of this community. Rather, we must continue to be, must be continue descriptive of who we are and what actually happens when students come through this wonderful, sacred place in this community of faith and learning. You have not been prepared 
unless you're becoming both theologically educated and sanctified, spirit-filled. I'd like to ask two quick key questions. First, are the words sanctified and spirit-filled redundant expressions saying the same thing in two ways? In other words, is this kind of like a strophe of Hebrew poetry where parallel phrases are used for beauty and emphasis, but both carry essentially the same message? If so, we shouldn't try to distinguish greatly between spirit-filled and sanctified. Or are these two words capturing different aspects of our Christian experience? Second, what does it mean for you to be spirit-filled and sanctified? How do these words connect with our history and our practice and, of course, your own experience? What can we do to live more missionally into these truths? Let me begin by saying that these two phrases are not redundancies, even if we are not precise, I think intentionally so, exactly what distinguishes them. But these words are carefully chosen by our founders to say something about the process of discipleship which lies at the heart of Wesleyan identity. Let's begin with sanctification. On Wednesday, September 15, 1790, John Wesley wrote a letter to his dear friend, uh, Robert Brackenberry. Now, Brackenberry was a Methodist preacher who established and led the movement in Lincolnshire and was one of Wesley's top 100 advisors. Uh, Wesley wrote him 18 letters that we have access to. And the one I want to highlight is his 17th letter to Brackenberry. When Wesley wrote this letter, it had been 52 years since his famous Aldersgate experience where his heart was strangely warm back in 1738. Think about it, 52 years. So as Wesley lifts his quill to write his dear friend, he is 87 years old. In six months, Wesley would be with the Lord. And let me read you just the first part of this letter. You're going to love it. Dear Sir, your letter gave me great satisfaction. I wanted to hear where and how you were, and I'm glad to find you are better in bodily health and not weary and faint in your mind. My body seems to have nearly done its work and to be almost worn out. Last month, my strength was nearly gone, and I could have sat almost still from morning to night. But blessed be God, I crept about a bit and made shift to preach once a day. Don't you love him? On Monday, I ventured a little further, and after I'd preached three times, once in the open air, I found my strength so restored that I could have preached again without inconvenience. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, don't do that. But <laughs> think about that. But listen to this latter part of the letter. I am glad Brother D has more light with regard to full sanctification. They even time the lights for this. It's amazing. <laughs> this new chapel, it's amazing what it'll do. Even it knows what I'm saying before I say it. I am glad Brother D has more light with regard to full sanctification. This doctrine is the grand depositum which God has lodged with a people called Methodist. And for the sake of propagating this, chiefly he appeared to have raised us up. 
And brothers and sisters, John Wesley is looking back over his entire ministry. This is six months before he died. And this remarkable Methodist movement, which God has unleashed. Historians would later call this the Great Awakening. Wesley looked back to this, if I can borrow the phrase from Jonathan Edwards, at this surprising work of God. And Wesley declares that the doctrine of sanctification is the grand depositum of what we preach. He said, it's the fact, it's the very reason God raised up this movement. That's what grand depositum means, the great doctrinal deposit. This is our gift for the people called Methodists to the world. The 16th century Reformation on the ministries of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Latimer and all the rest had restored the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. But it was the 18th century which restored the doctrine of sanctification more fully to the church. Now, it would be a mistake, I think, to assume that Wesley would have said this as clearly in 1738 as he did in 1790. The so-called grand depositum was surely the result of what I would call a grand journey of what the Wesley brothers and Peter Bowler and Zinzendorp and Christian David and John Fletcher and amazing women preachers like Ann Cutler and Sarah Crosby and Mary Bosankat and so many others who are all part of this. They all, despite their important differences, gradually realized that sanctification was the grand deposit. This was, in fact, the great contribution of the 18th century revivals to the world Christian movement. Now, of course, all authentically Christian movements embrace the doctrine of sanctification. That is not in question. However, what became increasingly clear to the Wesleys and to those who became co-laborers in this movement is that the church was debilitated and diminished, hear me now, by equating the word salvation with the word justification. As John Wesley and others re-examined the apostolic and patristic writings, they saw that this doctrine had been neglected and had become disconnected from soteriology. Salvation had become reduced to a transactional event, and the longer process of biblical soteriology needed a full recovery. They saw the church needed to be more intentionally pneumatologically focused, making the shape of our theology more natively triune as our mission statement also reflects. Compare, for example, some of the classic reform theology, systematic theology, such as Henry Theseon or Louis Burkhoff, with the Wesleyan theologian Thomas Oden. The former placed the Holy Spirit as either as a subset of Christology or as a subset of the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. Oden, in contrast, frames his entire three-volume systematic theology around the persons of the triune God. This grand depositum of sanctification was the holy reminder that the reception of grace is not merely an event, but an ongoing process in the life of every believer. Provenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace, and finally in the new creation, glorifying grace, They're all part and parcel of this grand story of grace and redemption, which we call salvation, which is not fully restored in the 16th century. 
Now, we shouldn't be overly critical of the magisterial reformers on this point. They never claimed that they completed the Reformation. So Wesley is extending the Reformation. Now, if I may quote the beautiful sentence from Ken Collins' writings. I love this sentence, Ken. Is Ken here? Yeah, Ken's here. <laughs> be careful, here I am. Listen to this. Wesleyan theology is optimistic about the capacity of God's grace to transform a person. All right, hear that? Wesleyan theology is optimistic about the capacity of God's grace to transform a person. Make that your screensaver. <laughs> that is so much a part of our DNA. We don't deny total depravity. We just believe that God's grace is greater than our sins. We believe that the yes of Jesus Christ is greater than the no of the devil. We believe that becoming a Christian is not the same as being a Christian. We believe that holiness is not an optional accessory for the few, but God's plan for every believer. Say amen. amen. Every single person in this room can be made holy and can live a victorious life in Jesus Christ. We believe that. Now what is quite clear in Wesley's writings and preaching and ultimately why the phrase sanctified, spirit-filled eventually found its way into our mission statement is the belief that the, there are works of grace subsequent to justification which are crucial for your life, for your Christian life and the effectiveness of your future ministries. The hymns of John Wesley, of Charles Wesley and the writings of John Wesley are filled with many different words that they employed to capture this work of grace we're calling sanctification. Now I've made a list by no means comprehensive of some of the terms which have appeared in either the writings of John Wesley or the hymns of Charles Wesley. Listen to this language. Second blessing. Second gift. Farthest rest. Personal Pentecost. Have you had your personal Pentecost? Fullness of the Spirit. Spirit of holiness. Going on to perfection. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Seal of the Holy Spirit. Effusion of the Spirit. It's like that effusion of the Spirit. Wrestling Jacob. That was the well-known name for that hymn, Come, O Thou Traveler Unknown. I love that. Wrestling Jacob. Inward baptism. And one of my favorites, uninterrupted holiness. Some may want to argue about the best word for us to use, but the New Testament self models for us a wide range of terminology that describes this empowerment of the Holy Spirit. There's also no precise pattern in how people receive the Spirit. No one makes this point better than Craig Keener in the first of his four-volume commentary on Acts, this is first of four volumes, where he says this, quote, Luke allows for a diversity of pneumatic experience and presumably invites his audience to show the same courtesy. By the way, it's on page 681 of volume one. <laughs> Don't you love it? So we're in good company. But let me say, brothers and sisters, I don't care what you call it or even how it happens to you. Just make sure you don't leave here without it. Amen? Amen?
the redirected, sanctified heart is at the core of our message and our identity and our contribution to global Christianity. Don't leave home without it. At least don't leave Wilmore without it. <laughs> now, being spirit-filled, I'm indebted to the writings of Larry Wood for pointing out to me that John and Charles Wesley and several of the other leading writers of the 18th century revivals relearned from the New Testament and patristic writings that the baptismal liturgy of the early church was a symbolic uniting of Easter with Pentecost. Now, you go into the waters of baptism is, of course, a clear recapitulation of the cross and resurrection of it as we die with Christ and raise with him through the waters of baptism. That is fairly standard across all Christian movements, and you all know it very well. What has been missed is that baptism was coupled with the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit, which is a recapitulation of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is why in Acts 19 they ask, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It turned out they had only known John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, but was not in fact the same as Christian baptism. Therefore they baptized him, but then they laid hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we already had seen this in Acts 6, Acts 8, Acts 9, and Acts 13. In John's Gospel, we have Jesus breathing on his disciples, equally valid, and Jesus says to them, receive the Holy Spirit, again, demonstrating a coming together of the resurrected Lord with Pentecost in that profound post-resurrection encounter found only in John's Gospel. Now, the liturgy eventually developed with the laying on of hands as an axe. It could have called us to breathe on our parishioners. But the liturgy was developed before the age of toothpaste and mouthwash. John Wesley recovered this as seen in his letter to William Law when he said, Baptized with the Holy Spirit implies this and nothing more. We cannot be renewed in righteousness and true holiness and, and otherwise, than by being overshadowed, quick, and animated by the Blessed Spirit. In other words, sanctification is not your hard drudge out through your own hard effort. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We must restore as part and parcel of our pastoral ministries the laying on of hands for men and women to receive the Holy Spirit. We must resist with every fiber of our being the noisy gong or clashing symbol of minimalistic Christianity. We must embrace a full salvation that, is that, that glor, uh, gloriously proclaims not only Jesus Christ as our glorious Redeemer, but the Holy Spirit as our blessed Sanctifier. Now, the last part of this message, I want to identify five appropriations of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. I'll now highlight five of them. The list could be ten, but because of time, I'm going to limit it to five. And this is your test to know whether you are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're a new student, this is your first test. You weren't ready for it. Here it comes. If you can respond favorably to these five marks, then you are going on to perfection. I don't care what you call it. If you cannot, then you are not yet sanctified. First, the Spirit gives us the assurance of our justification. We believe that every believer should have an inner witness that they are a child of God. 
And Wesley is clear that the moment a person exercises justifying uh, faith in the justifying work of the Son, you should receive a witness of the Spirit that God loves you, that he has pardoned you through the good news of the gospel, and that you exhibit joy and peace through the reconciling work of Christ. And that's confirmed to the Holy Spirit. It's also confirmed to the community of believers, to the means of grace, like baptism and the Lord's, Lord's Supper. There's a lot of pastoral work here for your future ministries. I cannot tell you how many times I inquired of one of my parishioners about their spiritual state, some of them on their deathbeds, and they said to me they could only say they, were, they would hope they were going to heaven. Second, the Spirit grants us bold confidence in the Word of God, and we are enabled to proclaim the Word of God boldly. We are experiencing a crisis today of confidence in the Word of God. But the Spirit of God attests to the authority of God's Word. Wesley understood that when you read Scripture, you don't read it alone. You read it in the presence of the risen Christ and that he inspires the Word of God and enables that to be appropriate into our lives. Once understood, we were empowered by the Spirit to preach it and teach it with boldness. Wesley used the example in Acts 4 where the elders and scribes are amazed at the boldness of Peter and John who, of course, are rebuked, they returned to the church and they prayed in that text, same in Acts 4, they might preach the word of God boldly. Then they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and for the third time in the chapter it states, they spoke the word of God with boldness. This repeated in Acts 9.27 with the newly converted Saul of Tarsus, and again in 13.46, 14.3, 18.26, 19.8, 26.2, and 2831, where Paul or his companions are said to be preaching boldly. Today, preaching across all of our traditions has become tentative, tepid, fearful, and at times almost apologetic. We seem to think that the Word of God is boring. It's not boring. People, we think people would rather hear our stories, our opinions about whatever. They don't. They're longing to hear the word of God. And one of the real signs that we have not been filled with the Spirit is in the measure which we reply upon the Spirit to fill our preaching. You can preach a lot of sermons in the flesh, but transformative preaching comes as an overflow of the Spirit of God working in you and through you. Third, the Spirit enables us to live in ever-increasing holiness. The contemporary church has turned discipleship into sin management programs. Without addressing the redirected heart and what only happens through an encounter with the Holy Spirit, which is just as real as that encounter we insist you must have with Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with persistent or reoccurring sins in your life, you need to be filled and keep on being filled with the Spirit. This comes to us as both event as well as process and appropriation. We need clear moments where people lay hands on us and we are filled with the Spirit. That's an event. But we also need ongoing growth through the discipleship band meetings. This is a process. This is why I think our statement distinguishes between Spirit-filled and sanctified. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit, yet we continue to need more of the Holy Spirit as we move toward full sanctification. 
Because if your life is like mine, you find out that you leak. We need to keep on being filled. And as he digs up and dredges up stuff, that space needs to be filled. Be filled and keep on being filled as we go on to full sanctification. The terms are not interchangeable. Both terms, be filled with the Holy Spirit and be sanctified, are both uh, event and process. Pentecost is not like the resurrection. It is not a one-time event, the one which happens over and over again in the book of Acts. Peter is filled with the Spirit four times just in the book of Acts. The early church kept getting filled with the Holy Spirit even as they were going on to perfection with the goal of entire sanctification. Both are event and process. I exhort every student and everyone, staff that are here, faculty, administration, everyone, to be a part of a band meeting. Kevin Watson's book, The Band Meeting, published by Seedbed, is one of the best introductions to the nuts and bolts of this. We now have a Seedbed app for this. By the way, Seedbed is watching live stream from Tennessee. We give greetings to Seedbed team there in, in Franklin. But the Band Together app is part of what facilitates this. Our community formation that uh, Dr. Covington leads also will help us in this way. The fruit of the Spirit should be manifest in our community in ever-increasing ways. We live in a culture which has become degraded and crude. We live in a culture which is shockingly deficient of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Therefore, to bear those fruits out is to shine like a glorious light in a culture filled with hatred, sadness, warfare, profanity, anxiety, impatience, faithlessness, and being out of control, the anti-fruits of the Spirit or the fruits of the flesh. We want to see the end to all bondages to sin in our community. That's part of our mission statement. Whether it be pornography or gaming addictions, or opioid use, or drunkenness, or hating your body, or shaming, or any other signs of brokenness which would creep into our community. We say, we want the end of it all. We also joyfully recognize the gifts of the Spirit as available to the church. And again, indebted to Thomas Oden for showing us that Wesley's clear via media was on the one hand rejecting cold, rationalistic Christianity, which put it all on your head, but also emotional extremism. We're not talking about that, which focused more on experience than the cultivation of holiness. Proper ordered, though, Wesley believes that the gifts of the Spirit should be fully operational in a truly renewed church, as his lengthy letter to the skeptic Conyers Milton makes clear. In fact, Wesley even envisions a church whereby a dead person could be raised or demons be cast out experiences foreign to much of our Western contemporary experience. Fourth, the Spirit calls us to be agents of societal transformation. We reject a truncated post-enlightenment form of the gospel which turns the whole enterprise into a privatized faith disconnected from the world we live in. The modern, modern world is fine being a Christian, as long as you keep it in your head. The New Testament understands that holiness has implications which are personal as well as societal and structural. The church is helping to foster the inbreaking kingdom. We work for justice for the poor, hope for the disenfranchised, 
and desperately needed racial reconciliation in our country and in the world. The church celebrates recovery for addicts and mercy to the immigrants. The church holds up truth and morality and righteousness in a culture which has lost its way. In short, there's no part of creation which we do not work to see under the Lordship of Jesus Christ as we become his co-laborers in redeeming the world. Does your heart ache for all of this? It's a sign of the Spirit. And fifthly, finally, the Spirit empowers us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. We are those who are burdened. Our hearts burn like fire for those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are thousands of people groups in the world that have no access to the gospel unless somebody crosses a cultural, linguistic, social barrier to bring them to the gospel. There are a whole generation of the so-called nuns who are growing up in this culture who have no Christian memory. Brothers and sisters, we are called to go into all the world precisely because God's provenient grace has already beaten us there. And this, there are so many modern flesh and blood versions of the Macedonian man and Lydia who continue to call and beckon us to new place of ministry. In conclusion, when H.C. Morrison founded Asbury Seminary in 1923, he called this community to be sanctified and spirit-filled. To be spirit-filled and sanctified is not some sectarian doctrine, but is at the heart of the gospel once and for all delivered to the saints. This is basic scriptural Christianity. Scriptural Christianity is what the early apologists defended in the second century. This is why Athanasius wouldn't budge as he fought the Arian heresy in the third century. This is the legacy of the Cappadocian fathers in the fourth century. This is at the heart of Aquinas' Summa Theologica in the 13th century. This is part of the Puritan and Pietistic struggle of the 17th century. This is Wesley's grand depositum of the 18th century. And the mantle is now passed to us. It is now our turn to keep remembering the gospel. Let us not believe too small or be found with tiny prayers, stunted faith, or powerless lives. Let us not lose our courage when it comes to boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word. Let us embrace our full inheritance. Let us be spirit-filled and sanctified as we embrace the full ministry of the triune God in our midst. Thanks be to God. Amen.